Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Okay, Exodus chapter 5 and 6, and as I shared earlier, this is uh, Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh. You know, he's been commissioned. The Lord's given him a commission. Uh, We've looked at his life growing up, and God's prepared him for this moment. And uh, in uh, what we're going to be doing, and you know, I've been starting to try to title my messages, and uh, I don't even remember what I titled it now, but it's first encounter with Moses. There you go. Um, But with that, um, what I really noticed as I was studying this, these two passages, or these two chapters, excuse me, is the characters involved in this story. You look at the people of Israel, how do they respond in this situation? We'll be looking at that this morning. We're also going to be looking at Pharaoh and uh, maybe trying to understand uh, where he's coming from. And, and uh, you know, we interact with the pharaohs in the world around us. And so hopefully we'll get a better understanding of them. And then, and then Moses himself, the servant of God, how did he respond to this first encounter with Pharaoh? We'll be looking at, at Moses. And then finally, we'll be ending this looking at the Lord and, and his salvation for us. And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. But what I want to draw your attention to, if you'll turn back one chapter to chapter 4, verse 27, that kind of sets the tone for what we're going to be looking at this morning. Exodus 4, verse 27, it says, And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the children, uh, all the elders, excuse me, of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. That's a pretty good start to Moses's ministry. You know, he was very reluctant as we looked at in the last couple of weeks, the reluctant deliverer. Now he's going, he's in obedience. God has sent his brother, his older brother Aaron to, to be his spokesperson. So Aaron meets him. Uh, Moses relates to his brother all these things that have taken place. And, uh, and then they go and they talk to the elders of the children of Israel who are slaves in Egypt. And uh, it says here that they believed and then they bowed their heads and worshiped. So the very first thing we see in the people with this news is that there's faith and there's worship taking place. And that's got to be encouraging for Moses and for Aaron. All right, the people are with us. They know that God has sent me to deliver them. And, and, uh, you know, it's a great start. How encouraging. So next stop, Pharaoh's court. That's what we're going to look at now. So chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh... Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. If you think about it, this got to be a very bold step for Moses because 40 years ago he had his poster up in the post office, you know, uh, wanted, dead or alive probably, you know, Moses killed an Egyptian. And, and, and so he knew that he was a wanted man. In fact, that's why he fled to, to uh, Midian uh, during that time. And, and then the Lord said, hey, all those guys that, are, that have gone after you, they're dead. And so, but you know, for me, I'd be, I'd be a little leery. He's like, okay, maybe somebody remembers, you know, uh, my crime or whatever. And so this is a bold step for Moses. 
And there's inter something interesting here in verse 1. Uh, the message that Moses gives, it says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. This is uh, the first time that the God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel, appears in scriptures. And, you know, they're a people, they're a family, there's millions of them at this point, um, but they haven't been identified as a nation yet. And here, for the first time, God is calling them a nation. And yet they're slaves, they're in Egypt. But you see, God looks not at what we are right now, but what we will be. And so God speaks, speaks as it is. And so this is my nation. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Verse 2, And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Listen, the Hebrews are his slaves. We look, at, we look at Pharaoh from his standpoint. They're his slaves, right? They're inferior to the Egyptians, at least in his mind. And so why should he listen to the God of Israel? I mean, after all, they're slaves. And so God, their God must be pretty weak. If they're inferior and they're slaves, why would I listen to their God? As if, you know, he, you know there's, they're weak, right? They're a weak nation of slaves. So he says, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice? Now, Pharaoh's question is not, well, you know, I don't know the Lord, so I, how can I obey the Lord if I don't know him? That's not what Pharaoh is saying here. Pharaoh doesn't really want to know the Lord because he doesn't want to obey the Lord. And that's really a picture of the wicked. The wicked do not want to know the Lord because they don't want to obey him. In Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 10, verse 3 and 4, it says, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. He could care less about God. Psalms 12, verse 4, speaking of the wicked who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? And then when we get into the New Testament, Paul gives us, uh, or yeah, Paul gives us a very uh, good understanding of unbelievers. And he talks about them in Romans chapter 1. And in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that they don't know of the truth, but they suppress the truth. They put it down. They, they, they tuck it away. They don't want to face the truth. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what they may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." And Paul goes on to talk about how they started worshiping the creature. They, you know, they worship birds and animals and, and trees and, and, and they worship creation rather than the creator. And you know, that's the same thing with Pharaoh. If you look at ancient Egypt, they worshiped all kinds of gods. They even worshiped the river Nile. We talked about that last week. Professing to be wise, they've become fools. Verse three. This is Moses and Aaron now. So they said, 
The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, when you read that, does it kind of sound like he's being a little bit dishonest? I mean, are they lying to, to Egypt or to Pharaoh? Because, you know, after all, God said he's going to deliver them out of Egypt. And now they're asking, hey, Pharaoh, can you let, our, let the people go for three days journey to worship the Lord? And, you know, and the inference is they'll come back. We just, you know, so it's six days, right? Three days out, three days gone, or maybe three days there, whatever, a week or so. And then they'll be back. That's what it sounds like he's saying. Listen, this is an easier command for Pharaoh to obey than just letting the people go. And I think what God is doing is, is he's proving Pharaoh's heart. See, if Pharaoh let them go into the wilderness for three days to worship the Lord, it would indicate that there's a little bit of a softness in Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll let him do that. But you see, since Pharaoh said no, it proves that his heart is already hard. In fact, the Lord even told Moses, Pharaoh's not going to let him go. Listen, if he doesn't allow the lesser request, certainly he's not going to allow the greater request of full emancipation. So I think the Lord is just giving Pharaoh an opportunity, and yet the Lord knows that his heart is hard, and it's giving him another opportunity to harden his heart. Because they have choices. We all have choices. Verse 4, Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their offices, officers, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So they are making bricks. Well, we would know them. I mean, you know, I grew up in California. In fourth grade, you learn, you go and you learn about the missions, all the missions up and down California. Uh, and you learn about adobe. You know, the, it's Spanish for mud brick. And that's basically what these are. These are adobe bricks that the children of Israel were making. And uh, adobe's been used, I did a little research on it, 4,000 plus years of building material. I mean, that's how long it's been, you know, used and stuff. It's amazing. Uh, so you take mud and you mix it with straw. Why do you do that? Well, it binds the brick together in one sense, but it also allows the brick to dry evenly so that it doesn't crack. You know, one doesn't dry too fast or the other. So, so they're making all these bricks uh, for whatever they're building, cities. And I don't know if they built the pyramids or not, but they're, they're making these bricks. And what Pharaoh is saying here, because we look at Pharaoh, you know, he's, 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 he's making a judgment of the people of Israel. And what he says is, but they have too much time on their hands. If you have time to come and tell me, you know, you want time off, well, then you're, you're not busy enough. You need to keep working harder. And so I like what the King James Version of verse 9 is. So I think it gives us a little more of a glimpse into it. It says, let there be, uh, let there more work be laid upon the men that they may labor therein and let them not regard vain words. The new King James says false words, but the King James says vain words. What Pharaoh's basically saying, hey, it's a waste 
of time for you to sacrifice to the Lord. There's too much work to do. You know, that's a very important statement because Satan, the world, and even our own flesh will say that to us sometimes. Hey, worshiping the Lord, spending time offering sacrifices to the Lord, spending personal devotions, coming to church, you know, being involved in women's Bible study, you know, all these things that we offer for people to participate in in the fellowship, it's a waste of time. You've got more important things to do. Satan lies to us about that. Our own flesh lies to us about that. There's too busy, too many important things to do. It's a waste of time. Why do you bother having your personal daily devotion? You know, what a waste of time. There's more important things to do. On Wednesday nights, we're going through uh, Mark's gospel. And a couple weeks ago, we were in chapter, well, we've been in chapter 14 for a while. Finally made it out of there. But um, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about when Mary, she took a, an alabaster jar, a very costly perfume, it was, like a, it was worth a salary, uh, excuse me, a year's salary, uh, very expensive, like, a, like an inheritance type of a thing. And she broke open the flask and she poured the, the spikenard over, over Jesus. And in Mark's gospel tells us some of the disciples said, what a waste. That, I mean, that could have been spent on the poor. We could have, you know, that money could have been taken and we could have bought all kinds of stuff for the poor. What a waste. And as we dug in there a little further, we discovered that it was Judas that really started it. Judas is the one that said it. And we find out that he was a thief. He didn't, he, he didn't care about the poor. He just, he wanted to pilfer the money. But, you know, the disciples, they started agreeing with Judas. Yeah, hey, yeah, you're right. That is a waste. I mean, there's, that's, that's a waste of that resource. To the disciples, it may have seemed to be a waste, but not to Jesus Jesus says, hey, what she's done is going to be a memorial. It's going to be mentioned forever. And we were honoring that by we studied it there a couple weeks ago. There's another incident earlier in Mark chapter 9 that we looked at. It's when the disciples, they're unable to cast out a demon out of a boy. Jesus had gone on the Mount of Transfiguration with the inner circle of disciples. He comes back down. There's this commotion. There's a man with a demon-possessed boy. And the disciples, and he says, what's up? And not quite a what's up, but you know, that's my vernacular anyways. Um, I don't think Jesus talked like me. Hopefully he didn't. But anyways, they said, hey, I brought my son to your disciples to cast out a demon. They couldn't do it. And so Jesus cast the, disciple, uh, cast the demons out of the, out of the boy. Um, and so then later on, they come into the house, and they go to Jesus, they go, Jesus, Rabbi, how come we couldn't do that? And he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And I can imagine the disciples are thinking, probably the way I would have thought, it's like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> okay. So I get this situation that occurs. Now I gotta, I gotta say, wait, give me about five minutes. I'm gonna go pray and I'm gonna fast. And then I'll, uh, then, I'll be, then I'll do that, right? That just doesn't make sense, Jesus. You see, that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus is saying you should have a, a life of prayer and fasting so you're prepared for those situations. For you and I, when we spend time in the Lord, when we're, we're growing together here, fellowshipping, it's not a waste of time. It prepares you for going out in the world and ministering to the world around you. It, it's, it's not wasted time. And so Pharaoh here, he's not going to let the children of Israel go off to worship the Lord. 
and we look at this, and there's so many pictures in Exodus, and one of the pictures is the bondage of the children of Israel. It's a picture of sin. Jesus said this in John 8, 34. He said, Jesus, uh, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You see, Satan is a picture of Satan. And like Pharaoh, uh, uh, Satan's a cruel taskmaster. Did I, I said that wrong? I messed up. <laughs> He's not going to let a person freely go out of his grip. You know, and, so, and you've probably you've experienced that. I'm sure you have. You know, you, you're in bondage to sin. Someone shares the gospel with you or you're reading scriptures. At some point, you pray to receive Jesus Christ from, you know, you, and you confess your sins. You in, invite Jesus into your heart and you're set free from your sin. And you would think, okay, wow, I'm free. Now I can go. But, you know, Satan doesn't give up, does he? He wants to hang on to us, and so he'll try to keep you in bondage. He'll try to convince you you're still in bondage, but we're not. We've been set free. So verse 12, so the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters were forced to hurry, uh, forced them to hurry, saying, fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also, the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making uh, brick both yesterday and today as before? Now, as I was studying this, you know, verse 12 jumped out at me. I think verse 12 proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that none of my ancestors were Egyptian. None of my answers were Egyptian. Ancestors, I should say. Why ego? Why, why is that? Listen, the people looked high and low for straws, and they couldn't find any ripe straws. That's my last name, right? Ripe straw. Pass it on. Okay. You wouldn't believe how long I spent trying to get that delivery, and I just blew it anyway. So. <laughs> All right. Okay, anyways. <laughs> You're a tough crowd. <laughs> Well, listen, for the people, we got to look at the people, right? It's worse for them now than it was before Moses and Aaron spoke to Pharaoh. Now they have the hardship of finding their own straw, and they still have to make their daily quota. So at some point, you know, maybe the straw was delivered from some farming region somewhere, and then they would, you know, stick the bales of straw, or whatever, however they did it, and there's, so there's this pile of straw. Now they're not doing that, and they still have to produce the same amount of, of, of bricks. So they're going out gathering whatever they can find. And uh, so for the people, it's like, it's worse than it was when they were, you know, before Moses even showed up on the scene there. And if things seemed hopeless before, now it just seems that much more hopeless. And you know, quite often, the Lord will allow people, he'll allow you and he'll allow me sometimes to go through situations in our lives to come to the end of ourselves, where things seem totally hopeless. It's like, what? I, I, you know, it's, it's worse now than it was before. There's no hope. But the, sometimes the Lord, you know, does that. And we go, well, was that because he's cruel? No. He wants us to realize that we're helpless in our own strength. And sometimes it takes getting into that situation to understand that. And he wants us to turn to him for our deliverance. And so sometimes the Lord, it's a loving, it's as a loving father, he allows us to go through difficulties to prove his strength to us. 
And so verse 15, then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants and they say to us, make brick. And indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you're idle, idle. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. I always have this picture, you know, Moses and Aaron's like, all right, what do he say? What do he say? You know, and they said to him, let the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So if you look at the people, back in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, they, we, we see them in faith. They're believing that God's going to deliver them. They're praying. They're worshiping the Lord. But now they've gone to, in verse 12, to increased difficulty and hardship. And now, verse 21, there's anger and resentment against Moses and Aaron. And you can kind of understand it, right? When their circumstances were tolerable as slaves, I mean, yeah, they were slaves, but at least it wasn't as bad as it is now. They had joy when they were given a glimmer of hope. Hey, God's coming to deliver you. Woohoo! you know? Um, they're excited about that. But as circumstances become harder and more intolerable, they quickly lose their joy. And that happens to Christians too. We get set free from sin. We're all excited about it. And then there's difficulties. And then there's trials. And, you know, it's easy to, be, to lose your joy. But that begs the question, where's the source of your joy? If your joy's uh, in circumstances, it's going to ebb and flow with the circumstances. Things are going good, I'm joyful. Things are going bad, I'm miserable. That's if your joy, the source of your joy is your circumstances. If the source of your joy is in the Lord, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, because God's faithful. The other thing, too, is they did something wrong here, the children of Israel. I'm not saying that they sinned, but the problem for them is that they sought relief by going to Pharaoh rather than crying out to the Lord. Going to a man to try to fix their problems rather than going to the Lord. God said this through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 30 verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin. Do we do that sometimes? I think we do, don't we? We go and find counsel wherever we can get it, and yet we don't go to the Lord. The very first place we should be going for counsel. The children of Israel were slaves, and yet somehow they thought Pharaoh would be sympathetic to them. But you see, like I said earlier, Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. He's, and like Satan, he's a cruel taskmaster, and his true colors, so to speak, are revealed here. He could care less about their increased hardship because after all, they're slaves. So verse 22, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. So there's a contrast here between Moses and the people. Moses, you know, the people went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you know, help us out here. And he could care less. Moses, on the other hand, did what the people should have done. Rather than going to any other person, Moses takes his complaint to the Lord. Why, Lord? Why is this going on? Why have you brought this trouble on this people? Why is it yet you've sent me? He's not rebuked for asking those questions. Why, by the way? Moses had his faults. And we'll see that as we go through the book of Exodus. We'll see many of his faults. But we often see him in scriptures as a man who spent much time before the Lord. In fact, later on, and we won't get to it, but it's in Numbers chapter 12. Later on, Miriam. Miriam is Moses' older sister. Aaron's his older brother. Miriam and Aaron are going to rebel against the leadership of their little brother Moses. And they're going to, to uh, start a little uprising against Moses. And in Numbers 12, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. It says this, verse 4, Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both went forward. And then he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark scenes. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You see, that's Moses' character. Yeah, he's, he, he's got some doubts here, obviously. He's questioning why things are the way they are, but he's going to the right place. He's taking it to the Lord instead of to someone else. And the Lord wants us to do that with him. So we get to chapter 6. So Moses is like, why, Lord? Why, why, why? Why did you even send me? And I could just see the Lord going, hey. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Now you will see what I will do to, Mo to, do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Moses, now you're going to see what I'm going to do. Verse 2. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. So he's saying, you know, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as uh, God Almighty, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. That word Lord is the name Jehovah. It's what we pronounce it, Jehovah. He who is. That name, it's called the Tetragrammaton. Uh, it's traditionally, it has not, wasn't pronounced by the children of Israel because it was so sacred. They, they didn't even want to pronounce the name. And then around the time of the Renaissance, uh, or I should say up until about the time of the Renaissance, it was written without vowels. Y-H-W-H is just the way they spelled it. Um, but after the Renaissance, they added another word, the vowels of another word, Adonai, uh, they added it and trying to figure it out because we don't really know how it was spelled or how it was pronounced. Um, Moses did. 
Moses had that relationship with the Lord. We don't, so we guess. But we, in your Bibles, it'll say the Lord in capitals, and it means uh, Jehovah. And he says, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. Now, that's what God is not saying is that they've never heard the name Jehovah before because Moses's mother's name is Jochebed, and Jochebed means the Lord is glory. So it's not that they didn't know the name Jehovah before, but you see, God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But now to the children of Israel, he's revealing himself as Jehovah, he who is, the unchangeable God, the covenant-keeping God. Now he's revealing, hey, I'm a God who keeps his promises. Think about it. It's been about 400 years since God made his covenant with Abraham. And after the death of Jacob, there's was centuries of silence. And for Israel, their situation seemed hopeless. You see, the God who fulfills his promises was keeping his promise. He had not forgotten it. He had been preparing them all along for its fulfillment. And so he says, Moses, now you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. And what he's communicating to Pharaoh is the resistance of Pharaoh or the might of Egypt, it's not going to be able to prevent your deliverance. You know, I, I love looking at the, the uh, history of the nation of Israel. And I, I, loved, I, just, I love the stories about how they became a nation. And whenever there's a documentary out there or a historical thing or something, I love to read it or, or, or watch it if there's a movie or something like that. Because it just amazes me how for so many, so many multiple centuries of silence, out of you know, it seemed like utter no hope. In fact, during the Holocaust was one of the one of the periods of the most hopeless time for the Jewish people, and yet the covenant God was faithful to His promises to Israel, made them a nation, and and even now the nations all around them. How many times have they tried to wipe Israel off the face of the map, to wipe them off into the Mediterranean, and they failed? You know, now you hear the leaders of Iran saying, you know, we're going to destroy Israel. Well, yeah, they're not going to. God won't let them. But it's not just that I like history. I do like history. But you see, when I look at God's faithfulness to Israel after 2,000 plus years of obscurity, and yet he keeps his promise, I know that he's going to keep his promise to me and to you as well. So that gives me great hope when I, when I study anything having to do with Israel. So verse 4 says, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians uh, keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. And so now our focus, it turns away from Pharaoh and his hard heart. It turns away from the, the fickleness of the people. You know, they started with faith, things got tough, and now they're angry and resentful at Moses. We're even turning our attention away from Moses. Now our focus here turns on the Lord. 
And you'll notice in those verses three times the Lord says, I am the Lord. Three times he reminds them that he is the unchangeable covenant-keeping God. Then we also see that seven times God says, I will. And in the Bible, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. It's God's number. And so there's seven things that God says he's going to do. His deliverance of the children of Israel will be perfect and it will be complete, just like your and my deliverance is perfect and it's complete. He says there, the first I will, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'm going to lift those burdens off of you. And you know, as we come, to, we come as sinners before the Lord and we're burdened with sin, we're burdened with guilt, we're burdened with just the consequences of, of our actions. And the Lord God says to us, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How refreshing that is. The Lord's going to take our burdens. And then sometimes we put our burdens back on the Lord, right? It's like, Lord, you know, but he's there to lift our burdens if we go to him with them. The next thing he says, I will rescue you from their bondage. That word rescue means to deliver from the power of someone or something. Total deliverance. I love what Paul says in Colossians 1.13, and I think it's so important. In Colossians 1.13, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's total deliverance. That's total rescue. And why it's so important, why I love that verse, because many times as a pastor, I've, and it's happened, it happens quite frequently, I'll be talking to a dear brother or a dear sister in the Lord who feels like their deliverance wasn't complete, that they need to go to some deliverance thing, or they need to, they need to do this or that because they haven't been delivered. Well, the truth is you have been delivered. It's past tense. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. He has set us free. It's total. It's complete. It's perfect. The next thing he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Redemption. What is redemption? It means to buy back from bondage. God's going to redeem the children of Israel with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. That outstretched arm, it means all the miracles, all the, the plagues and everything, all the, the mighty things that he's going to do to deliver his people. And you know, for you and I, Jesus Christ, he also had outstretched arms when he delivered us, but it was when he was nailed to the cross and shed his blood for us. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He's saved you and I with outstretched arms too. The next thing he says, I will take you as my people. That's ownership. I love that. 
Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9, says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. You know, Jesus likes to identify with you and with me. We're his people. The next thing he says, I will be your God. So not only are you my people, but I'm going to be your God. That speaks of relationship. And if God's for us, Paul says in Romans 8, 31, what then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let that sink in when you feel like you're all alone and you're, you're up against everything and the world's against you and stuff. If God's for you, I mean, who can be against you? The answer is no one. No one can. The next thing he says, I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's telling Moses, he's telling the children, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm faithful. And the writer of Hebrews in chapters 10, 23 reminds us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There's a reason why there's stories in the Bible. These stories, these, you know, it's not just like, okay, this is cool. We'll just kind of study about Moses, you know, the prince of Egypt. And, you know, it's an interesting story. No, all scripture is written for you and I to encourage us, to give us hope, to see that, hey, if God, inter if God worked through the lives of these people and he, and he delivered these people, and he did all, he's going to do the same thing for us because he's a faithful God. Then he says, I will give it to you as a heritage. He's speaking of the promised land. And what he's basically telling them is you have a future, and that future's in heaven. For us, anyways. 1 Peter 1.3, it says this, Blessed be the God of our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, sometimes we get so caught up on, on trying to uh, build up this kingdom or, or our possessions or whatever, and, and you know... Uh, when I, I was shared with guys, some of you guys that were here, you know, when we went to, on a reunion and, and uh, went up to Canada and we're driving down the highway and there's this really nice Corvette and, and uh, the, tran the uh, license plate said, uh, 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 my our tranquility, I think is what it said, our tranquility or our peace and stuff. And, and I mentioned, I said, you know, here, and I don't know the people's heart, but, but the sentiment is, you know, this machine is my peace. I get my peace from my machine. I think of, well, what if somebody steals your peace, <laughs> you know? Or what if your peace gets in a wreck by a drunk driver coming the other direction? Or what if your peace starts resting? Well, if you live in Minnesota, we all are familiar with that. You know, our peace is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a future. Those things that we store up here on earth, you know, moth destroys, thieves break in and steal, you know, they, they, they corrode, they, they fade. It's only God's promise. Our deliverance, our future, our, our heaven is what is incorruptible. It's reserved for you and I. Could you imagine 
you and I, you know, we, we put our trust in the Lord. We're, we're walking with the Lord, and then and then we die, and we, we get up to heaven, and and all of a sudden the Lord says, "Ah, uh, sorry, <laughs> filled up, no vacancy." You know, sorry, uh, we've changed the rules. <laughs> you know, it's not going to happen. Heaven, our eternal home, is reserved for us. Verse nine. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Again, looking at the people, they went from faith and worship, they experienced difficulty and hardship, then they became angry and resentful, and now Moses can say anything he wants to say, they're not gonna listen to him. They're not heeding the words of Moses and Aaron. They've become bitter. You and I, you know, when I look at that, sometimes I see that in the lives of people. You know, they start out, they're loving the Lord and stuff, and then things become difficult, and they become angry. Maybe they're angry at the Lord for allowing them or angry at a person for doing whatever they're doing. And and then pretty soon it's like you can't even minister to them because they're not listening. They're not listening anymore. We need to guard our hearts from growing bitter and hard. But there's good news in this. This isn't just, I'm not trying to bum you guys out this morning. There's good news. Notice all of those seven wills, or I should say none of those seven I wills in verses six through eight contain the phrase, if you. None of them are say, I will do this if you do that. What a blessing that is for us. God was faithful to his promise and delivered them and it wasn't based on any of their conditions. It wasn't based on if you grumble and complain, God's going to deliver them. The Lord God is faithful to finish the work he's completed in you and I because he's faithful. It's not because of us, it's because of his faithfulness. But you see, we have a choice how we're going to live our lives as Christians. We can be joyful Christians because our, our, our joy is not based on our anguished spirit, our cruel bondage or circumstances. Or you know, if, if our joy is based on the Lord, we can walk around as joyful Christians. Or you can walk around, it's your choice. You can walk around shrugging your shoulders. You know, Jesus loves me. Yeah, I, I guess I know that. You've got an eternal home. You've, you've got heaven. Yeah, I guess so, you know. And all this time you've got this thing that's weighing you down. Listen, it's our choice how we finish the race that's set before us. But God is faithful to bring you to the finish line. But it's it's your choice how you're going to get there. You can get there all bummed out and, you know, down in the mouth believer. You're still saved. You still have an eternal home. Or you can be joyful. Your joy's in the Lord. And my encouragement to each, and myself included, let's, let's finish well with joy. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. You know, I can't blame Moses He's really struggling here. You know, it, it was, the Lord had to really convince him that he was the man for the job after 40 years of being in the desert, uh, you know, and, and he's, he's doubtful. He doesn't feel he's worthy. He definitely feels unqualified for the task. 
And what I see here in verses 10 through 13 is the Lord gives Moses the same command as before. It's the same command. You see, the Lord's so patient with Moses, and he's so patient with me. Sometimes, you know, I, I know I've been called to be a pastor. That, that's one of the ministries the Lord's called me to be. And sometimes I can, I can go, Lord, I'm so <laughs> just not up to the task. I'm so unworthy. I'm not qualified. I haven't been to cemetery, I mean seminary. I, you know, I'm not qualified. And the Lord's so patient. You know, the gifts of the calling of the Lord are irrevocable. He says, I've called you to this ministry. And, and you know, he doesn't mind repeating that to me. It's not like, hey, I told you once, get over it, grow up. He doesn't say that. He says, no, I, I've called you to this ministry. And he, and he reaffirms that. And he'll do that in your life too. He'll reaffirm his calling in your life. He's so patient with us. Now, if I was God, I would have gotten tired. <laughs> Moses, shut up and just, you know, I'm going to find somebody else, you know. Praise the Lord, God's not like me. Verse 14, now we get into a, a, a uh, and I didn't read this before the service, because um, I'm going to struggle through some of the names anyways, but, but now we get into the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Verse 14, it says, These are the heads of their fathers' houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amran, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Izar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphon, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elisheba, the daughter of of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, his wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasath. These are the families of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel, his wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites, according to their families. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. When I was studying this, I'm like, okay, it almost seems like, you know, how does that fit into what we're looking at this morning? Well, what I saw in here, and there's probably other things that you can pull out of here, but what I saw in here is that Moses and Aaron's great-grandfather was Levi. And the tribe of Levi, of course, will be the priests of Israel. But what that means is Moses' great-great-grandfather was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Remember, he wrestled with God and God renamed him and said, now you, you've gone from being Jacob, the heel catcher, the supplanter, to Israel, led by God. 
And we see this beautiful relationship with God and Jacob and with Israel. But then there's three or four generations of silence until Moses, until his generation. And I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about my, my ancestors. I, I couldn't tell you anything about my great-great-grandfather. I don't know that much about him. Um, and maybe you don't know that much about your great-great-grandfather but, or grandmother, but maybe they had a real close relationship with the Lord. And, and the Lord is really interacting. And then, and then maybe your grandparents, your parents, and you, you grew up, maybe you didn't even grow up as a Christian or you know, maybe in a secular type of situation or whatever. And, and now you're the generation here. And, and I see that. It's like all these three generations, maybe four generations of silence, but now God is going to do a mighty work for and through this generation, the Moses' generation. And for you and I, we are the generation alive today. And God wants to do a work through us as well. And so are, are we up to it? Are we up to what the Lord wants to do with us? You know, we have that prophecy conference coming up. And uh, it's, uh, you know, you look at the, the situation, the times around it, and you go, man, I don't, I don't, I think Jesus is returning pretty soon. And, and we're that generation. We might be the last generation before the Lord returns for his church. Could be us. And so, the Lord wants to do a work, and we know that there's going to be a lot of things happening in the last days. I want to be used by the Lord. I want to be, I want to be prepared. I want to be prayed up. I want to be, have a life of prayer and fasting. I want to be ready for those things. It's not a waste of time. Well, verse 28, we'll close here. And it came to pass on the, day that the Lord, on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord, Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. It's like, it's like a repeating, but you know, God's so patient. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? He's still reluctant. And we're going to look at next week um, what happens in chapter 7. Why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. The worship team, you can come on up too. One of my prayers this morning, I got up early and I was just spending some time with the Lord and, and just praying for the service and just, you know, wanting just to get my heart right before the Lord. And, and one of the things that just came in my mind was, was Isaiah, where the Lord says, you know, um, like water comes down, I'm, I'm heavily paraphrasing, I don't have it memorized, but you know, as rain comes down to the earth, it doesn't go back up to heaven. As snow comes down, it, 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 you know, it, it provides seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So shall my word not return back to me. It'll accomplish what I've purposed it to do. So this morning I was praying, I was like, Lord, I just pray that whatever I say, Lord, that your spirit would use it and to transform our lives this morning. And so that's my prayer this morning. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your people here this morning. And Lord, I know that sometimes I can, when I look at the, 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 the transitions in the people from faith to hardship to anger, resentment, Lord, I see myself in that. Lord, I see myself in Moses growing discouraged sometimes and doubting and seeming unworthy. And yet, Lord, I see your faithfulness. And Lord, this morning, I pray that your spirit, Lord, would take our study this morning and that, Lord, you would 
speak to each one of us and that we would apply your word, what we studied this morning into our hearts as we obey your word. May your word produce fruit in each of our hearts this morning, Lord. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can stay standing if you would.